Sunstrom Recruitment are the leaders in health and safety recruitment. If you're considering a career change or need to discuss your organisation's hiring, reach out to the team today. We were awarded Recruitment Agency of the Year in Health and Safety in 2023 and are a proud sponsor of Health and Safety Conversations. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is the absolutely awesome Andrew Hopkins. Andrew, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on your program. Absolute pleasure. You are one of the safety superheroes of mine. You've written extensively about disasters, industrial disasters, their causes, and what we may have learned from them. But where did it all begin for you? What was the interest that sparked the pursuit of safety investigations? Yes, it's a it's a good question. It goes back into the mists of time. I'm a sociologist. I'm interested in all things sociologically sociological, in particular inequality. I'm very interested in social inequality, and it be, it became clear to me fairly early on that workplace health and safety is one of those areas that's where you see this very clearly. It's workers who are getting injured and killed. People further up the social scale are not. And that's what really, really bothered me and focused my attention on health and safety initially. If I can give a couple of little anecdotes, that one story, for example, that really upset me was a worker who was, this happened in the 1970s, actually, a worker working in the Kellogg's factory in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, he, his job was to get inside one of the vats and cooking vats and clean them out. And they were supposed to be disconnected from any hazardous sources but in fact there was a a release of steam into the vat and this guy was burnt extremely badly and died within hours of of those burns and 
that's it was a story that stayed with me and 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 motivated me. I used to talk about it to my high school age children and my partner, and I was asking them about it recently, and they still remember those conversations vividly. So that was that was a starting point in relation to health and safety. If I move a little further on to the question of disasters, I, I've I've developed a much powerful interest in causes of disasters and how to prevent them. And I think that came a little bit later, but it was to do with my first exposure to that or example of that was a, a coal mine accident in New South Wales in 1979 at the a mine called Appin, which is not all that far from Canberra where I live. And so I paid close attention to it. And I think there are, I don't know, 15 people died in that accident. And as with all these accidents, there, uh, there's corporate negligence. Um, whether you prosecute for corporate negligence or not is an entirely different matter. But there are always, there's always this corporate negligence which infuriates. Anyway, I wrote a story, I wrote an article called Crime Without Punishment, this, uh, treating it as a case of corporate crime. But I then realised that you don't get many lessons for prevention out of that approach. And the next big disaster I was interested in was a coal mine in Queensland, the Maura coal mine. And by this time, I had a different focus. And I saw these as cases of organisational failure. And it was a much more productive way to think about these accidents. Because if you think about organisational failure, there are a number of things you can do about it. And so ever since that time, that notion of organisational failure has been a focus of all my work. So that's a, 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 a starting point answer to your question of what got me interested in all these things. Good, good. Sociology, to be honest, I don't know much about it. I, to be honest, I'd also say that most people don't know much about it. What, What's it the study of? Okay, a good, good question. For me, it's the way I define sociology is, well, starting point is this, that human beings, what creates us? It's the, it's the, the organisations in which we live and operate. It's the cultures that surround us. It's the societies in which we live. These things are powerful influences of who we are, what we think, how we behave. They don't determine them entirely, but they, they, they are very powerful sources of who we are and what we do. So, so we as individuals are, to, to a considerable extent, social creations. On the other hand, individuals can collectively influence the cultures, the organisations in which they live. So there's a two-way process goes on here. Sociology is really the study of that process. It's the study of the way in which organisations, cultures influence human behaviour and then the way human beings influence the cultures and the organisations. Work uh, since most workers work within an organizational context, sociology becomes a very natural way to think about what's causing their behavior. Speaking of culture, uh, one of those things that gets brought up in safety all the time is this mention of workplace culture. Does it exist? Well, I think, yeah, this is a very good question. There's a lot of waffle talked about about culture and it's because we treat culture as an abstract term then we can get away with this waffle because it's very hard to know what's being said so I like to go back to my definition of culture is the way we do things around here 
the way we do things around here. It's a very simple idea, but if you think of that, that's what we mean by culture. It's the, it's the things which are accepted and encouraged in this particular organization or this particular family environment, whatever is the environment. It's the way we do things around here is the culture. Once you understand that, and if you keep in mind it's the way we do things around here, this then throws up the issue of how do you change culture? How do you change the way we do things around be, around here? And far too often, consultants and even and academics argue the way you change people's, the way people behave is by trying to change the hearts and minds, by, by running educational courses, educational campaigns to change what, what they think, to change their values. Now, if you understand that values and thoughts are a construct created by organization in which people operate then you have to say is you you can't change the way they think just like that just by running courses it's not going to change unless something about the organization changes so it's actually the organization that creates the culture it's the it's the structures of organizations it's the incentive arrangements within organizations mm -hmm. that create the way we do things around here and that shifts the focus away from human beings away from individual workers it's not there you know, we have to get away from this blame the victim kind of approach mm -hmm. that's so common. And as soon as you understand that people's behaviours are created in the way I've just described, you get naturally away from that blame the victim mentality, which, and you can start to think about, well, what changes in organisational structure are necessary to generate the kind of behaviour that we want? Yeah. Is it, if culture is the way things we, the way we do things around here, is it possible to have many different cultures within the same organization? Absolutely, and they're certainly right. The, the, if, you, if I want to unpack that phrase, the way we do things around here, around here, where is here? So here can be the local workplace. It can sometimes be the whole organization. It can be the society. So there are national cultures. It's the way things are done in this nation. So around here, the concept of here depends upon, it has to be defined first, and then we can talk about the way we do things in this particular location or, 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 organism, or context. And it's the way, the other thing about that definition is it's not the way things, we are told to do things around here, it's the way we actually do them. And that's a, that's a huge difference, right? The cultures, organizations will say, well, this is what we do around here because we, we tell our workers to do this. But the fact is they don't do it that way because that's not the way they do it in this particular workplace. They do it differently in this particular workplace because the organization, the local organization in which they are embedded is, is providing very different messages from the corporate messaging, which is coming from a very long way away. You mentioned... You mentioned incentivizations of things. You, you, you wrote a book called Risky Rewards about company bonuses. I've got my own opinion about how company bonuses may affect, oh, I suppose you could say culture, but also performance, behaviours, etc. What's yours? Bonuses are... These are one of the two key, two key factors that we have to focus on if we're going to understand why things happen the way they do and what needs to change. Um, because the bonus system is designed, very carefully designed, to put an enormous pressure on people 
to maximise production. And that pressure is very directly felt by, by workers because they're being paid to produce as much as possible and as quickly as possible. It's being felt by their managers also because they're being paid in accordance with production and also cost reduction. If they can reduce the cost of what they're doing, then their bonuses will be will benefit as a result. And those bonuses are usually a significant component of their remuneration. So that's that's very important. And there is what suffers in that is safety. Anything that's not connected with maximizing production will suffer as a result of those kinds of bonuses. Now, in addition to that, the more enlightened companies will have some kind of safety component in their bonus. And this, but they're enlightened to that extent, but they're unenlightened in that that safety component is usually some some aspect of injury rate. So it could be lost time injury rate or some other kind of injury rate. And they are providing incentives to reduce that injury rate. And of course, this they do this in a naive kind of way. They seem to think that they can just incentivize people to reduce the injury rate, and that will happen. It will, they, people will have fewer injuries. But the reality is that when you incentivize, well, the way I put it is this, that there are companies are trying to manage safety, but they end up just managing the measure. They're not managing safety at all. They're managing the measure. And the way they do it is by saying, all right, we want we want to reduce the number of lost time injuries. How can we do that? The most effective way is to bring people back to work on alternate duties. And hey, presto, they're no longer lost time injuries. They're mm-hmm. just non-lost time injuries. And you say you've got a reduction in your LTI rate, which doesn't correspond to a reduction in risk at all. It's just a reduction in the way these things are measured and managed. And the same with any kind of injury rate data, you go to total recordable injury rates. When the, when there is a pressure to reduce that rate, the first the first response is to manage the measure rather than rather than the actual injury rate. So, and the final point to make there is that the focus here is on injury rates, and there's no focus on managing major ac- major accident risk at all. Now, the thing about major accident risk is that major accidents are rare. For any one company, they're rare. You, they may get a major accident with multiple fatalities once every 10 years. But the other, the other nine years, there are no injuries, no fatalities resulting from the major accident risk, the, the explosion or whatever it might be. And so for those nine years, if you're trying to drive down your injury rate, you're going to focus on the hazards which are creating those injuries and that mean that will exclude the major accident hazards because they're not creating injuries on an annual basis. When they do, at the end of, say, 10 years, you've got multiple fatalities. But bonus systems which are focused on reducing injury rates are missing major accident risk altogether. Yeah. Would you say that past performance in terms of preventing injuries has nothing to do with current safety no i wouldn't put it as as bluntly as that see fatality rates are not as susceptible to manipulation Mm. so if you focus on reducing your fatality rates and if those if if you're in if, if your unit of analysis is large enough a large company like bhp or one of these very big companies is likely to have more than one fatality every year several fatalities every year worldwide and that's enough 
to set about trying to drive that down. And if they can drive down that fatality rate, then, I, then they do so by improving safety. That's really the only way they can do it because there are not so many opportunities to fudge the fatality rate. I mean, there are some, for example, they say it was a contractor who died and he's not an employee of ours. And so mm -hmm. we don't count contractors. So there is all these tendencies to fudge the figures in that way. But on the whole, if you count all your contractor fatalities as part of your overall fatality rate, then it's difficult to hide those fatalities. And, and the only way you can drive down the fatality rate is by improving the, the, the way in which you're managing those risks. Yeah. You've investigated a number of industrial disasters in Australia. And the worry for me is I don't see there being any long-term memory for people in industry, but also for new people involved in the safety profession actually reflecting back and trying to learn something from it. Is corporate memory a, a reality or is it, is it, 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 do we just, or corporate learnings a fallacy or, or, or do, do corporations actually learn? The important question that you're asking there, Tom, I'm, I'm generally very pessimistic about the extent to which corporations can, can learn lessons. Individuals can learn lessons, but mm. corporations can't. Now, there, let me qualify that by saying that probably the most, of, the most obvious way in which organisations learn lessons is if they make changes in their procedures. Mm. They change their procedures um, in in a thoughtful way, you could say that they've learnt learnt the lesson. The problem is that if individuals haven't also learnt that lesson, then they don't understand the importance of those procedures and they don't comply with them properly. And so the the corporate learning fades away. And I think the reality is the corporate learning, whatever. It, well, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about because it's something that concerns me extremely deeply i've been as you know working on coal mine accidents and disasters amongst many others in 1994 there was a major coal mine disaster in an underground coal mine maura the maura mm. coal mine i think it was about 15 people 12 or 15 people killed mm. it was a real wake-up call to everybody concerned and to the industry and to the regulators and we had very substantial legislative change following that accident and the really the, the I think the the most standout feature of that legislation was that henceforth companies would be required to have principal hazard management plans. So they would have to identify what were the principal hazards in their environment and how were they going to manage them. So that seemed to be, you know, regulatory learning in a way. Companies should have learnt from that, should have learnt from that, should have, you think they would put a lot of energy into making sure that they were complying with their principal hazard management plans. Come 2020, that's 26 years later, I've been involved in studying another coal mine, underground coal mine accident at Grosvenor Mine in Queensland. Mm -hmm. And one of the most depressing findings was that their principal hazard management plan for the management of underground gas explosions was really not worth, worth the paper it was written on. 
I won't go into detail, but it was simply simply not observed. It was um, it was a it was a waste of time, and in a, essentially the man the accident in two thousand and twenty was very similar to the Maurer accident of of nineteen ninety four twenty six years earlier, and that's that's the thing that really bothers me that that fundamental lesson that seemed to come out of the Maurer accident was totally ignored by the company that ran around Grosvenor Mine. Mm-hmm. Now, there was nobody killed in Grosvenor, but it was only by the grace of God. Five, five miners were really seriously injured and could easily have died in other circumstances. So it was. I, I treat that as a disaster in the same way that the Maurer mine was a disaster, the Maurer explosion was a disaster. Yeah, yeah. Longford gas explosion in Victoria... Okay, that's fairly significant to the petrochemical industry in Australia. What led to it, and what was the what was the results of it in the short term? Yes, it's an interesting interesting story. If I can just explain, first of all, my involvement in that. Well, let me just say the Longford gas explosion in nineteen ninety eight, I think it was, cut off the gas supply to the city of Melbourne. Now, gas was, two, two men were killed and several others seriously injured. This was a really disastrous fire and accident. But from many points of view, the most significant outcome was that the gas supply was cut off to the city of Melbourne. Melbourne was absolutely dependent upon gas. So every Melbourneian was affected by this, by this accident. People had to have cold showers. And it's, 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 it's funny in a way, but that's what focused everyone's attention on this accident because they just took their gas supply for granted and it turns out you can't just take these things for granted. So this was a political issue. The government felt that somehow or other it might be blamed for this, for this accident. So it set up a Royal, Com- Royal Commission of Inquiry. It's very rare to get a Royal Commission of Inquiry for two fatalities. It just doesn't happen. But there was a royal commission in this case, and it was driven by that political concern of, of the government of the day. Now, I had some kind of involvement in this because one of my colleagues, a highly respected union organiser by the name of Yossi Berger, who died a couple of years ago, but was a, he was a good friend of mine. He, at the time, recognised... I wrote a book about Maurer, and he, rec- he read that book and he recognised that the failures at Longford, the problems at Longford were so similar. There were all these organisational failures at, at Longford were, were very similar to those which I had written about in my book. And so he wanted me to come and give evidence at the Royal Commission, which I did. So I, I had that level of involvement in it. And that then, of course, became extremely interested in the, in the accident. And I ended up writing a book, The Lessons from Longford, which which was very widely read. And I think the reason why it was based upon the findings of the Royal Commission, I think the reason it was widely read was because I really try and write in plain English. I really try and write for people who are not expert in the industry. And I go to a lot of pains to try. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And write as clearly as possible. And so I think that that was paid off with that book. So... Let me say a bit about a bit more about what actually happened at, at this with this accident. They were having problems with their process, okay, and this was a recurrent sort of issue that they had occasional problems with their process, which resulted in a very large steel vessel, a fourteen-ton heat exchanger, from time to time would get very cold, and on this particular occasion, it got particularly cold. Now, ice formed on the exterior of this heat exchanger, normally too hot to touch, but ice formed on the exterior. So they're very keen to do something about this, and they figured the best thing they could do was to pump it, to to circulate warm oil within the heat exchanger. Mm. Now, it turns out this, this this was a disastrous thing to do because the steel at this point was brittle with cold. And if you... If you pump warm oil into a brittly cold steel vessel, it will shatter, just as if you pour boiling water into a cold glass, it will shatter. And that's what happened. This steel vessel shattered, and oil and gas went everywhere and ignited, and the fire, and expl- a fire, major fire, was the result. Initially, Esso blamed these workers for this accident, but it was really clear from what I've just said that these workers had no idea what was going on. Mm. They were doing their best to remedy, to bring the situation back to normal, which is what they were paid to do and which is what they'd done on previous occasions. They'd restored normality, but it hadn't gone as the the process upset hadn't got to the point which it got to on this occasion with the steel vessel being brittle with cold. So they had really no idea of what they were dealing with and it was totally unreasonable for them to to be blamed for what happened. It's quite interesting that in the subsequent prosecution, ESO did not say a word about about the the role of the workforce because by this stage they knew very well that this would antagonise everybody, (laughs) as it certainly did. So that's a, a long response to your question but i think i think that's one of the reasons oh i should say this that this was a this was a landmark event and i think that the victorian government decided it really needed to have a a profound regulatory response to this and they set up a a new regime for for ensuring health and safety in these kinds of major accident facilities and this was the first regime in the in the country it's called a safety case regime and it was a model for what happened elsewhere over time in in this country. So it was a it was a landmark event in many ways. Yeah, yeah. Now, just with the Longford explosion, 
the company, if I remember from reading your book, had actually started moving resources away from the actual plant site, such as engineers who would have been able to help guide the workers. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So th this was that was a, another issue about how do you manage these major accident risks? You 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 need to have people on the ground to understand what's going on. You can't manage them from head office, a couple of hundred kilometers away, which is what they were they were hoping to do. Yeah. So that was a I think one of the contributing factors to that accident. Yeah. And poorly maintained plant and equipment. Yes, all those things were, were there and enormous, enormous pressure, industrial pressure on them to keep going. And I remember in reading that one of the one of the operators, when this accident first happened and the the fire was was taking hold, his first reaction was if I hit the emergency shutdown button, what will this do to production? Mm. And he hesitated. And that was, to me, a really important kind of learning as to what's really going on. The production pressures operating in that environment were huge and they were far more important than anything else. And so that's one of the lessons coming out of the, one of the lessons from Longford. Yeah. Is that the similar type of pressure and thinking that may have prevented rigs in in the Piper Alpha disaster, stopping to stopping or ceasing to pump petrochemicals to Piper Alpha when they knew it was on fire. Yeah, it's very similar. It's very similar that the the rig manager on on an adjacent rig that could see what was going on refused because Piper Alpha was kind of the collection point, and other rigs were pumping their oil and gas through Piper Alpha to the shore. Um, and those other rig managers said that they couldn't stop pumping unless they got instructions from from ashore, from head office on shore. And again, it's about production being overriding everything else, and unless there is unless they get explicit instructions, they're going to go on pumping. And it's it's a classic example of what can happen in these situations. Yeah. Now you mentioned the similarities between the Mara Mine disaster and Longford. What were they? Between similar, I don't think I mentioned, oh, well, sorry, yes, there are similarities. For a start, the way safety was measured was in terms of lost time injury frequency rate. And both at Longford and at Maurer, uh, they were doing very well. At, at, at Longford, they had very low LTIFR. At Maurer, it had been high, but they were working on it. It was coming down. And what that means is they were ignoring the major accident risk because I said, as I said earlier, major accidents are rare and they don't contribute to a lost time injury frequency rate on an annual basis. So if you're trying to bring your injury rate down, your lost time injury rate down, you're going to focus on the things which are causing that and it's the slips, trips and falls that are causing most of those injuries. And so you become complacent with respect to major accident risk. Now that's that was one of the one of the similarities. I'm trying to think of others. I think that it was they were managed remotely. They were managed from head office in at Mara, the head office in in Brisbane was where most decisions were made. At Longford, it was it was it was Exxon that was really calling the shots in in the United States. And those those remote management systems were much less responsive than they needed to be. Earlier on, you mentioned. You're interested about 
inequality. Is that in relation to regards to safety with the sort of power imbalance between those who actually perform the work and those who create the policies and procedures and, and are in charge of the conditions of the workplace? Yes, that's 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 what it's all about. And the people who are creating the policies and procedures don't necessarily have a clear understanding of what's going on and what will be the impact of those procedures. Are they workable? They don't necessarily understand what are the other pressures that are operating in that environment. And so so you can get all kinds of mismatches. The main main thing, of course, is that the, these people who create these procedures at the top of the organisation are not vulnerable to the hazards. Mm. They're not vulnerable to the hazards. Whereas if, if they were in the same situation as the workers are, they would be a lot more careful than they, than they currently are. Is, is there any way to overcome that? That's a good question. I, I think one way is to listen to what the workforce is saying more, to encourage them to speak up about what's really going on. It's very hard for workforce the workforce to speak up because bad news is not welcome at the top of the organisation. Bad news doesn't flow upwards easily. But if you can encourage that, then you're much likely to much more likely to get at what is really going on, what's really going wrong, and be able to do something about it before before it's too late. So that's I think that's one of the one of the key ideas. How to encourage bad news because generally speaking the bearers of bad news are not welcome and companies will say oh we encourage people to tell us what's going on but no one comes forward and tells us but the reality is there's no practical encouragement to do that if you stick your neck out like that you're just as likely to have it chopped off as you are to be rewarded and so i think i think it's really important that if management is serious about wanting the bad news, then they have to reward reward the bearers of the bad news. And I know some examples of senior managers who've really set in place procedures for making reward, providing rewards to people who pass bad news up the line, particularly if it's bad news, which is clearly going to have a bad impact. And they some one of the systems that I saw operating in Shell years ago, was such a system they had a they had the senior manager had a system of platinum awards gold awards silver awards for bad news which was coming up and if the more significant significant it was in terms of preventing a major accident then the higher the level of award which was provided and those high level awards were a couple of thousand dollars for news about things which were going wrong in in that kind of way so this was seriously, seriously aimed at encouraging people to project that bad news upwards. I remember this same woman who I was speaking to in Shell at the time, a senior manager. She had just received a report about what was going on, and she said to him, she said to the report writer, "Thanks for your report, and thanks for all the good news in the report. But, but where is the bad news? Can you please rewrite your report to include the bad news?" So it's about what what are the systems to encourage the reporting of the bad news. That's that's the only way. If if senior managers are serious, are serious about finding out what's really going on, 
then they have to put in place systems which really will reward people for, for conveying that bad news. Because most organisations, I mean, this is almost universal finding that, that senior managers don't really want to hear the bad news. And as a result, bad news travels upwards in large organisations very slowly. The good news shoots to the top very quickly, but the bad news doesn't. From studying disasters from around the world, is there any consistent lessons that you think we could learn from them? Yes, I think it is. We need to empower the people who who understand what's going wrong. Now, what that means is in large organisations, in high hazard organisations, that's going to be that's going to be engineers and also work, well, qualified workers at the bottom of the organisation, but particularly the engineers who understand what those risks are, because very often those risks are quite are complicated. And they're the people who's, who we need to listen to. And um, we need to ensure that those people have avenues of communication up to the high levels within the corporation that will not be stifled by managers at middle levels so they've got to have independent connections with with channels of communication to the top of the corporation which are independent of the, the business interests of their immediate bosses so that's what needs to happen to re seriously reduce the risk of of these major accidents which strike from time to time and that's actually what happens by the way when when there is a, major, a really major accident, which is threatens the very corporation, that corporations will turn around and create organisational designs whereby the engineers and others who are making important decisions can are not responsible to local business, business managers. They're responsible up independent lines to senior engineers operating at the top of the corporation who can understand their concerns and who are not influenced by the profit, profit considerations which are driving local business managers. So those organisational designs are extremely important ways of, of reducing those, those risks. Mm. All right. I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball here. We're often referred to in safety to look up to what's called high, high reliability organisations because they they seem to manage safety, at least at the face value, at such a better level than most other organisations. But when they get it wrong, large numbers of people die. Are high reliability organisations any different than any other organisation in managing safety? Yes, I, I, would, I would like to say a few words about this. Most of the organisations which have been studied as high reliability organisations are military organisations, Air Force, Army and Navy, and they are not driven by profit considerations. Much of their time in peacetime is spent exercising. And in that kind of situation, they can afford to, and they, they do take risks very seriously. Uh, and they, they respond to those risks and they elevate the bad news. They make sure the bad news is, is elevated to the right places and, and they operate in a, 
in an extraordinary way and with very few, very few accidents happening. Of course, as soon as they go to war, it's totally different. They, you know, they're, they're in an entirely different situation that they're in where they're not now expected to minimise the risk of something happening. At least that's not supposed to be the top priority. The top priority is to win the war or win the, the particular engagement. But in peacetime, that's their top priority is to operate safely. That's not true of business corporations. Their top priority is not to operate safely. Their top priority is to stay in business and, and, and make money. And that's always going to be the way. So safety can never be a top priority in a business organization. That, that, that was my second question. Was, was the, Have you ever come across a, a business where safety is the number one concern? But I'm guessing the answer is no. Certainly not a commercial organization. Their, their top priority is satisfying shareholders, and there's just no way around it. I mean, if they don't satisfy shareholders, they'll, they go out of business. Mm. And all of their bonus arrangements for the top managers are, are organized around maximizing return on investment. And if that's the way things are set up, then, of course, that's the top priority. That's the organization's top priority. It becomes the top priority of of the senior managers in the organization and that's the message which comes down the line it's very difficult for companies which are fundamentally business organizations to do anything about that with the best will in the world that's that's built into the system that's the system they're operating in and the military is a different story they're not there to make to make money they're there to basically they what's their job in peacetime it's to train constantly to train, to maintain themselves at high levels of alertness, not to make money. And so they can be HROs, high reliability organizations in a way that it's very difficult for commercial organizations to be high reliability organizations. Yeah, good. All right. Safety legislation. In Australia, we seem to have in the last probably 10 or so years been putting in harsher and harsher penalties for non-compliance to the safety acts in the various jurisdictions. Do you think that actually works? Do you think it actually contributes to safer workplaces? I I, it, I think it probably does, but it's, there are much more effective ways of doing it. And my concern is that if you prosecute individuals and even corporations after a major accident, vast amount of resources goes into defending people and defending the corporation and obscuring the issue, ensuring that the really important issues don't get dealt with. Uh, and it seems to me it's interesting that that's the only time we get these major prosecutions is when there's been a, a significant fatality or multiple fatalities, whereas the legislation doesn't actually doesn't say you must not kill people. It says you must minimise risk. But we don't get prosecutions for failure to minimise risk unless it results in a, in a fatality, typically speaking. And that's a, that's a kind of paradox in a way because what the legislation is saying, the, what's, what you must do is minimise risk and the prosecution is actually for the fatality. And those two things are not the same. So I, I actually think that it's... Um, what we should be focusing on is what's sometimes called pure risk prosecutions. That is, where a company has not done everything it can to minimise risk. There's been no fatality, but it hasn't done everything 
it could do to minimize risk. And if you can prosecute in those circumstances, it seems to me the focus will remain on risk minimization. It remains where it should be, not on the fatality, which in many respects is, is an accident. I mean, nobody's set out to kill people. So mm. in many respects, it's an accident. And to prosecute only in that situation is distracts attention from where the real focus needs to be. You've got an extensive body of work, Andrew, but for me, it's surprising you never tackled, well, at least as far as I know, you've never tackled Bhopal, which is one of one of the worst industrial disasters, I don't know, that I can think of in history. Have you ever thought about writing about that? No, because many other people have written about it. Yep. And I wouldn't really have anything to contribute beyond what has already been written. But uh, it's 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 a, it's one of the world's worst industrial disasters, I, I totally mm. agree. Um, and there are lots of lessons to be learned from it, as there are for many of these major accidents. Yeah, excellent. All right. Now, what's in the future for you, Andrew? Well, I'm... I'm basically retired, so I'm still doing consultancy work, but less and less of it. So they say old soldiers never die, they merely fade away. But I think that may be the the fate for me. I will will fade away into the distance. Very good, very good. Well, regardless of which, I, 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 and I'm pretty sure a lot of other people would like to thank you for your body of work that you have already contributed, because... It's a lot of learning and it's a lot of higher learning for for people like me who don't have that much experience in investigations. I really do appreciate it, but we're getting close to the end of our time. So thank you once again for being joining us today. I'd love to have you on again sometime, anytime you wish, Andrew, because you're awesome. But for now, we we'll, might have to leave it there. So thank you, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. All right. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.